Hello and welcome back to another Berlin, where we do in-depth dives into the ideas that shaped and continue to shape the city of Berlin. My name is Katarina. And my name is Cody. In this episode, we're turning our attention to something you see all over Berlin, but might not notice all that much. Hidden in empty spaces between buildings, in Hinterhofs, and probably just down the street from where you live. That's right, we're talking about playgrounds. Or, in German, Spielplätze. Berlin has some very, very interesting public playgrounds. But for the last 50 years, Berlin has nurtured playground design and innovation, while many parts of the world retreated to boring plastic slides and rubber ground. What is it about this relationship between city and playground that resulted in these unique spaces we have today? And, as always, what could the future bring? If you're like us and want some in-depth answers to these questions, stick around. One quick disclaimer before we dive in. We are not professional historians, and history is tricky. Even though we work really hard to give you the best information available, there is a tiny chance we missed something. Before we start, take a moment to pause and let yourself go back to your favorite childhood playground or parking lot or field. Can you remember the smell of the grass or the sounds? If you could go back today, what's the first thing you would do? My name's Cherry, oh, I'm from Hong Kong. I'm Max, <laughs> and I'm from Berlin, Friedrichshain. I'm Julian, I'm Italian. I'm Tamina. I grew up in a really small village nearby Hamburg. So my name is Janis. I grew up in Bremen, Germany. My name is Thomas. I grew up in Australia. If you ever hang out with people in Berlin, this is a perfectly normal introduction to hear. Some of us come from all over the world, and some of us grew up in Berlin. And this city has become our home. But no matter where we're from, we all carry childhood memories of spaces and places that shaped us as much as Berlin shapes us now. Places where we could do whatever we wanted, or imagine whatever we want, without any restrictions. The way we played as children is deeply rooted in who we are as adults. Were we shy or outgoing? Creative? risk-taking? Did we love being in a group or alone? Most of my childhood I grew up in my grandma's garden with a lot of trees where we were climbing on. It was a lot of fun. And uh, my hometown we don't have that many playgrounds. When I moved to Berlin I found fascinating that here there are a lot of playgrounds. Every leftover piece of land between buildings becomes, if possible, a playground, and this I find beautiful. When I was a kid, uh, you, you sit on the swing and you can kind of fly up in the air, feeling like uh, reaching those high-rise residential buildings around you, and also kind of breaking free from the ground, surrounded by all this stuff. I was very excited the first time I went on the swing in Mall Park. You can really swing high up in the air, but it's just different from Hong Kong because you are in such a free open air in Berlin. 
why in Hong Kong um, I swing in a very dense city, so it's quite different. My favorite memories of the playgrounds in my past are definitely the slides. Climbing up as high as I could go, even though I was in still am afraid of heights. But I also love the swings, and I don't know what you call it, it's like a sling with a plate on the bottom. Is it the zipline or? Yeah, exactly. I wouldn't even care that I'm grown up now, I would still do it. My favorite playground was in Centennial Park uh, in the city. And I think what was so great about it was that there were so many, like I said, of secret passageways and, and that sort of thing. There was one playground that had a basketball field, two soccer fields, and like this big, big playground where they had all kinds of play constructions, you know, like swings. If I could go back, first things I would just start climbing the trees that I love to climb a lot. Like there was this really, really large tree. It was really hard to, hard to climb, but we did it anyway. And uh, when I was a child, I, I went to the kindergarten and there was a playground and uh, my memory of that like, was ginormous. All of these hidden places where you could explore and different things to play with. And a couple of years I went back together with my daughter because I wanted to see it again. And I looked at it and it was so tiny. <laughs> you know, like the perspective changes as you grow up. You know, you grow up, everything else gets smaller. Apart from being places of personal freedom, playgrounds are also crucial parts of the city infrastructure. By definition, city playgrounds are outdoor spaces planned by adults for children to use and play in. In the words of architectural historian Roy Hosilovsky, playgrounds represent the paradox of the modern discourse of play. Part of this paradox is that adults who may have forgotten the feeling of childhood play, are often the only ones in charge of designing and implementing spaces for children. Because of their complexity, playgrounds represent one of the most radical spaces within a city. And Berlin is no different. Recently we met Janis, who is an urban explorer at one of his favorite playgrounds way out in the southwest Berlin Keats of Schmackendorf. There's many things special about it, but the most obvious one is a giant rope climbing permit. A lot of playgrounds have these, but this one is about three or four times as big. And then when you go up, you have a really nice view over the area. I came to Berlin in 2011. About a year later, my daughter was born, and that's when I started to explore. Janis is the creator of Berlin Playground Guide, a project where he and his daughter visited and documented some of Berlin's coolest playgrounds. At some point, I found these hidden playgrounds in the backyards of some big apartment buildings, and that's where I got started to think, how many more places are there in Berlin that nobody knows of that you need to tell people about? One thousand nine hundred is the official current number of public playgrounds in Berlin, which does sound impressive. And it's not just the mere number that makes them stand out, but it's their variety in design, size, typology, and craziness.
So the most common theme is a fairy tale playground, so a castle. My favorite one is in Rudo. It's called the Robin Hood Playground. It's a giant castle, yeah, really, really big, much bigger than you would expect, with many little towers and bridges and so on. And you can take a little bridge from the castle into the hut of Robin Hood, into the trees, and it's actual tree houses. So these kind of like unique details of playgrounds, I love it. And I recently also built a few more castles. I got a bit tired of it after a while, you know, because I just think like, please not another castle, just build something else. There's just too many of them, but they're still incredible. Other than castles, Berlin has a number of playgrounds with animals or pirate ships. That's a really common thing. Normally they're shipwrecks, yeah. I don't know why they do that. <laughs> like split in half. There's one even called Titanic Playground. There is, for example, a dragon playground. Kids love it. You can climb into the mouth and it looks just really scary and big. Another great example is the whale playground. It's a giant whale and it spits water and you can go inside and you can find the heart of the whale. I think it's golden. And then in another chamber of the whale, there's the baby, so it's pregnant. A really imaginative and inspiring, you know, like, and, and like, just don't build another castle, just build something like this, you know. Some playgrounds, on the other hand, depict everyday city life designed to look like the real adult world. Outside the Ostkreuz S-Bahn train station, 40 meters away from the real tracks, there is a child-sized replica of the exact trains that pass nearby, with seats for both passengers and driver, and fun bridges between the two tiny train cars. Well, you know, now there's a lot of graffiti on it, but it, it looks like actual Berlin, you know, like the S-Bahn would be covered in spray paint. So the playground S-Bahn is as well, so I uh, love it. All of these playgrounds are here for the approximately 600,000 children and young people below the age of 18. As of 2015, there are 2.2 square kilometers covered by public playgrounds in Berlin, which is more than all the Spades combined. The Senate is in charge of their planning, distribution, finance, and maintenance. But if one digs a bit deeper, it becomes clear that though the city itself has an astounding number of playgrounds, the quality varies a lot from neighborhood to neighborhood. If people want to spend a day exploring playgrounds, they should go to Schöneberg. has a huge density of amazing, big, very creatively designed and well-maintained playgrounds. But a lot of castles. <laughs> a lot of, but nice castles, you know, and you can easily walk from one amazing playground to the next. Spandau is also good. They have an active project, it's called Raum für Kinderträume, pushing to the new nice playgrounds. You can sometimes find playgrounds hidden in neighborhoods that, you know, not that interesting. And you can also see that it's a great way to invest in neighborhoods also to build, you know, structure for everyone and not just uh, the richer neighborhoods. In 1995, Berlin saw its first large-scale playground development plan. The whole city was chopped up into small sub-districts, sometimes containing just a few city blocks. These were assigned various levels of priority or urgency. And this is basically how the playground planning still works. 
areas with playground deficits are given higher priority and with the help of the Playground Commission, a group consisting of architects, educators and parents, a new playground is planned. Most playgrounds in Berlin are general playgrounds, meaning they are aimed at ages 12 and younger and include a variety of things to play on. Usually these will include areas for older and younger kids, but there are also playgrounds made specifically for kids 6 and younger. For teenagers, Berlin is filled with skate parks and table tennis areas. Apart from these, there are special playgrounds, like adventure playgrounds. But we'll get to those later. If we look at the anatomy of the public playground in Berlin, it consists of two mandatory elements of nature and elements of equipment. Elements of nature represent the base for every playground. In Berlin, that element is sand, which covers almost every one of them. The equipment represents the man-made structures where children should get more physically active and jump, climb, and slide. The most common equipment fulfills those activities in the form of a swing, ladder, or climbing rope. A big part of designing a playground is the things we don't see, no matter if the playground ends up looking like a ship, castle, or an S-Bahn train. The underlying process is where the complexity lies. Playgrounds are not just there for children to be physically active, but to fulfill the mental and emotional side of play too. To be educated, to socialize, to be independent, make their own decisions, take risks, and feel free. This is why playgrounds can be understood as a physical manifestation of how a society conceptualizes childhood. In order to understand the playgrounds in Berlin today, one needs to understand where playgrounds came from. I think most playgrounds I visited in Berlin, they are much more imaginative or they open up more fantasies in children and also they're always sand on the ground. That was Cherry from earlier. She's passionate about playgrounds and showed us an old antique photo book. In it, black and white pictures depict a vibrant pre-war Berlin where children seem to own the city. One photo shows kids helping adults lay the actual street pavement on what is today Karl Marx Allee. Others depict children playing cards in the middle of the sidewalk in Kreuzberg. These scenes show us that playgrounds, as we think of them today, are a relatively new concept. Before the Industrial Revolution, childhood didn't really exist in the way we think of it now. Children were thought of as small adults who had no agency or worth outside of labor and waiting to become adults. But all that changed thanks to the impact of educators like Friedrich Froebel. Froebel was born in the late 1700s in what is modern-day Thuringen, Germany. Froebel contributed many things to the field of preschool education, most notably the kindergarten. 
Central to his teaching was the realization that children's play was an important part of learning and that outside time and activity was instrumental for both physical and mental health. Children would use the garden outside the school to stretch and do movement play. In 1850, Froebel's sand gardens, or Sandbergs, early sandboxes, started appearing all throughout Berlin and the rest of Germany. Unfortunately, the government at the time didn't look too highly on kindergartens, so a few years later, teachers who studied under Froebel were forced to leave, spreading his teachings and the sandbox far and wide to countries like the Netherlands, the UK, and the United States, where the modern playground began. In the 1880s, a native Berliner, Dr. Marie Zakarewska, introduced the first sand garden in North America. The simple concept soon spread in cities like Boston and other places looking to give children a space to be children. Growing recognition of the need for childhood exercise helped welcome and expand on the humble sand garden. These new playgrounds were seen as a solution to the growth in urbanization and all the dangers and health issues it posed. At the beginning of the 1900s, the Playground Association of America was formed to promote the construction of playgrounds and lay out common design structures. They even went as far as to say, playgrounds are a necessity for children as much as schools. Soon, model playgrounds began popping up all around the country. These playgrounds were not made for free play, however, and trained instructors on-site gave organized lessons. Though there were separate sections for boys and girls, these playgrounds had a lot of other similarities to playgrounds today. Swimming pools, swings, seesaws, slides, and of course, sandboxes. Thanks to advancements during the Industrial Revolution, These model playgrounds were made of galvanized steel and capable of reaching vertical heights that would possibly be illegal or deemed unsafe by today's standards. The Great Depression, followed by the Second World War, put a hold on playground construction as steel and other materials were routed to war efforts. In some cases, playground steel was even scrapped and melted down to aid in the war. The stagnation in the U.S. would continue up until the 50s. Back in Europe, as the dust of war settled, the rubble and bomb sites gave birth to a new type of playground, the adventure playground. But the concept for these adventure playgrounds, or junk playgrounds, began in Denmark years earlier. Since the 1920s, landscape architect Carl Theodor Sorensen had been working in Copenhagen to replicate rural landscape within the courtyards of Danish housing complexes. Grass and plants were forests and sand beaches. His ideas eventually developed into Skrammellegeplatz, or junk playgrounds. These spaces were, by design, not intended for educational or directed play. Instead, the goal was to provide an environment where children were encouraged to create their own imaginative play, rather than having adults or structures dictating what they should do. But in 1960s, this concept fit perfectly with many of the political and social changes happening across Europe in the wake of the Second World War. In London, Another landscape architect, Marjorie Allen, took notice of Sorensen's work and developed it further. In fact, she was the one to rename junk to adventure playgrounds. 
probably a good call. She began advocating for playgrounds in general to be designed with a shade from the sun or rain and with an understanding of traffic patterns or distance required by children to reach play areas. Soon, these adventure playgrounds spread all over the UK, especially appealing after the war, because they could be built on a land of little economic value. Ellen traveled the world, bringing attention to these design concepts. In the 1960s, residents in Berlin's Märkisches Viertel came together to build Germany's first adventure playground. Many parents and community members embraced the idea behind the parks and also saw it as a chance to take their children's development into their own hands when the government had failed to help. Though associated with radical or anti-authoritarian agendas, these adventure playgrounds spread through the country rapidly. Neighborhood initiatives formed in West Berlin with the goal to provide mobile play experiences and to maintain and build adventure playgrounds. Some of these organizations are still around today. One influential initiative was called Spielwagen, where a group of activists would create mobile playgrounds that one could dismantle, pack in a van, and drive wherever the next playground was needed. Kids loved it. Around the same time, in Amsterdam, Dutch architect Aldo van Eyck was given the job to build public playgrounds in each of the city's neighborhoods. He created ambitious shapes and structures inspired by similar design principles seen in adventure playgrounds, allowing the child to decide how a playground could or should be used. New advances in design and manufacturing allowed these structures to become more elaborate. Playgrounds were becoming exciting again. However, in the late 1970s, in the U.S. city of Chicago, a one-year-old child fell off a three-meter-high slide, hitting his head on the concrete below, causing severe brain injury. The resulting $9.4 million lawsuit, which would be 32 million euro today, resulted in a sweeping change in safety guidelines and ushered in an era of standardized playgrounds across the US. This problematic trend occurred in a number of other countries around the world too. These changes resulted in smaller, more identical playgrounds that led to a decrease in use and sparked harsh criticism. Throughout the 1990s and early 2000s, Child play researchers and designers from all over the world have advocated for the use of natural elements and the return to incidental play. This is still an ongoing battle today, and different parts of the world have different levels of success when it comes to fighting standardization. Germany, and especially Berlin on the other hand, had escaped, and is still escaping, this widespread standardization starting in the 1980s. When it comes to laws, Berlin went with a different strategy that resulted in the type of playgrounds we know today. In the late 1970s, the Berlin Senate passed the Children's Playground Law, which still guides playground development today. This law set a very ambitious goal. Berlin should have one square meter of public playground per person. It also laid out regulations about playground size, safety, and distribution. Another explanation for how Berlin escaped boring standardization? 
In short, it's nearly impossible to sue the state. Public space in Germany is not held hostage by lawsuits. In fact, a child as old as seven is considered responsible for their own actions, including injury. However, this doesn't mean that there are no safety standards that the state is responsible for. If a playground has a nail sticking out of play equipment, or it's otherwise in disrepair or not up to regulation, that is a different story. But if everything is planned and maintained correctly, the laws are made in a way to support an important concept called calculated risk. Yeah, I mean, I hurt myself once sitting on one of those zip lines swings because we were too fast and I just landed on my butt. Yeah, but that's, that's it, you do it again. Just <laughs> One of the first playgrounds that really surprised me is tucked away in Kreuzberg, south of the Landwehr Canal. The playground is a cacophonous assortment of ideas, filled with swings, water play areas, wooden palm trees, and miniature buildings. But one obstacle is an abstract climbing structure that, once you get to the top, if you can, opens to a circular path made of only two tightly pulled wires one for a child's feet, the other for their hands. If you can get up here, the idea goes, then you are big enough to navigate it. The thinking continues that if the child does fall, then they know they're not ready, or they learn to hold on tighter the next time. The reason behind regulating injuries like this is to teach children that they are in charge of their actions. Ellen B. Hansen Sansetta popularized the term calculated risk in her writings, where she argued that exposing ourselves to risk and coming back unharmed is an essential part of our psychological development. I mean, I hurt myself a lot, but I mean, it's, it's good. It's a good life lesson to get up for yourself. And later in life, you're gonna face the same issues eventually. You probably see a kid climbing up to a scary height, but the kid doesn't care. The kid sees the slide and he wants to slide down the slide, and so it's going to be worth climbing up wherever. So, for me, that's, that's good. You know, we talked about dangers on playgrounds. In Foxborough Friesheim, this is one that uh, my daughter broke her arm on. She was on top, this shiny dome, and she fell and broke her elbow. You know, maybe not the most dangerous looking playgrounds are the most dangerous, but in my opinion, kids need to learn what it means to be in danger, you know, what it means to hurt, <laughs> so but they can avoid it in the future. There's also the hospital right next door. So it's a perfect place for dangerous playgrounds because they're close to the hospital. So if we fail to make our playgrounds slightly risky or challenging, the danger is not just that our children will be bored. We may be failing them as adults when it comes to problem solving and dealing with failure. Or, in the words of Marjorie Allen, better a broken arm than a broken spirit. Physical injuries are so easy to count 
but the psychological consequences of an unchallenging environment are not. And this is why designers have to be continuously encouraged to reinvent playgrounds and challenge standardization. And also, this is why we said it is not the mere number of playgrounds that makes Berlin special, but their variety. Further down the Landwehr Canal in Neukölln is a beer garden. Connected to that beer garden, situated right before a small patch of grass overlooking the spot where those three points the canal meet, is a medieval-themed Spielplatz. It has multiple slides, a fort, inventive ladders, a battering ram seesaw, and countless other things to keep kids excited and deep in play. And right on its borders, rows of traditional beer garden wooden tables for the adults to drink and socialize, occasionally looking over to see if the crying child is theirs and if any action is needed. I, I really like my beer at the playground when my daughter plays, you know, it's a nice way to relax. I think as a parent, that's probably like a really great thing to be able to do is to go there with your kids and just kind of let them do their thing while you get 10 minutes of kind of relaxed time. Legally, in Germany, parents have a duty of supervision, which means that they have to check once in every 30 minutes on young kids and less for older children. Supervision makes complete sense, but some parents take it too far. They're too attentive and on the lookout for any issues or stepping in where they're not needed that their extreme protectiveness actually impairs play and learning. There's even a word for it. Helicopter parents. And there's no play space in Berlin as immune to helicopter parents as adventure playgrounds. In an adventure playground, children are given household objects and other loose part materials or movable objects with no set directions. Children can use tools and are encouraged to work together to build the playground structure that they want in a democratic and free way. Today, there are 29 officially registered adventure playgrounds and children's farms in Berlin, but the real number is probably closer to 40. We've already talked a little bit about the history of these unique places, but what goes on inside on a daily basis? That's a little more difficult to know because no adults are allowed in. We say, okay, you can have one look around where your kid is going and then please stay in the parents' corner, which is also another thing we do to make sure that this is entirely for kids and by kids. One evening this spring, after the kids had left, we got to have a short tour of Kohle 37, the oldest adventure playground in former East Berlin, located off the U2 line in Prinzlauerberg. Our guide, Lukas, was a member of AKIP, which stands for Abenteuerspielplätze und Kinderbauernhofe in Berlin, or Adventure Playgrounds and Children's Farms of Berlin. Okay, uh, so we are now here at Kolle 37 in Prenzlauer Berg. And this is a typical adventure playground in Berlin. The two things that I would say all adventure playgrounds have in common, like a place to build huts and a campfire. 
And if you and if you look at the playgrounds from the city, like the, the normal playgrounds, there are so many regulations on, on safety and stuff like this. And yeah, and this is obviously uh, not that strict here. And here is a small oven for making like pizza. You see it's heavily used. And the kids even help like uh, making the wood, also chopping the wood in, in small pieces. Because this is actually the, the wood from the old huts. It is impossible to fully describe the layout of Kohle 37 because it changes every year based on what the kids want to make. But expanding out from the fire pit are paths leading to various huts, climbing structures, building materials, and even an old car. I think this is the third or fourth car they have here. As of course with no engine and, and stuff that's, that could leak out. But it's just one of those aspects that's kid have the freedom to do here whatever they want and create their own space so it's not strict that we put a car here and we say oh this is this car is to play like as a car driver and you see all the windows are smashed out here that this is, is a spent in and sometimes the kids are destroying their cars and so we just give the kids the the tools and they get creative and build or do or destroy whatever they want and they just can come in and say, hey, I started building this hut with my friends. Can I, can I proceed? And then we say, uh, of course you can. Here you got the hammer, here you got the nails. In Adventure Playgrounds, kids as young as six are given, with a form of distance supervision, the chance to use real tools. Hammers, nails, matches, saws to build and work together to make the huts and structures they want. Or burn things. At Colette 37, kids build each day over the course of a year to change and create the physical structure of the entire playground. An important part of play in an adventure playground is that it is self-directed and that the learning comes not from instructions or example, but from experimentation and first-hand experience. You can imagine when, when a kid is first time having experiences with a hammer or nailing something, then the parents is behind us, oh, hold it like this, hold it like this. Oh no, you're gonna hurt yourself. And we want the kids to make their own experiences. Akib also assists with training and volunteering at children's farms. If you've biked through Golitsa Park in Kreuzberg, you've probably seen a donkey or horse near the football fields. This is one of many children's farms located throughout the city. But these are not just places to look at animals. We don't want children's farms to be a petting zoo. We want the kids to get in contact with the animals, but this contact has to be something where both sides benefit from. Then they get to know them as living things or as creatures that have to be maintained because most of the time we see chickens and pigs like packed in the supermarket uh, and not like as living animals. Kids who come often to the children's farm, they just go around and say, ah, what, what can I do? Oh, this stable is dirty, I'm gonna clean it. Ah, the pigs need water, I'm gonna do it myself. Ah, this chicken looks sick, what do we do now? 
The beauty of adventure playgrounds is something that Marjorie Allen pointed out back in London in the 60s. Compared to standardized playgrounds, adventure playgrounds don't need the most beautiful scenic or waterfront locations. When you have the right place, all you maybe need is just like a caravan or a truck where you can put your office in and all the other stuff is uh, free. You just say, hey kids, we are open, come here and build whatever you want. And if you look around, it's kind of surreal scenery here because there's stuff laying around, there's a, there's a fire burning, the huts are not built strict, kids made them. And then you look up and you see next to it, it are just like expensive flats and um, yeah. You can't imagine where another adventure playground could, could be, which is kind of sad. It does seem almost impossible to imagine a playground district group, let alone property owners, giving up space to make new adventure playgrounds within the city, especially with constant pressure for more residential properties. But these spaces are not just common play areas or clubs or adult-free zones for kids to goof off and have fun after school. They're actually helping to create thoughtful, caring, and creative people. There are often children parliaments, like I think once a month or something like this, where kids can come in with their own ideas how to make changes on, on the playgrounds and farms goes from we want to name the chickens to we want to paint the house red and of course they vote for their opinions and for their for their wishes and they get a feeling for democratic processes in the in the first hand and they learn how to form an opinion and how to express it which really can help them with their speaking skills and communication skills and they get in conflict with each other because they don't have the same opinion and they learn how to solve their problems verbally and not like physically when they make the decision, we want to paint this fence red, then this fence is painted red and they see, okay, what I decide here, what I decide with others, what we decide as a social group has an effect. And I can hardly think of many other aspects in life where kids have that many chances to, to create and have a direct effect on their nearest uh, yeah, environment. A big vision would be that in every neighborhood one day will be an adventure playground or a children's farm because if there are places for kids to go and to go there on a regular basis to feel free just to be kids and to be as they want to be it would be a, a total dream and we would definitely benefit from it as a total society because the social skills uh, the kids learn here are, are so important an adventure playground or children's farm in every neighborhood would be wonderful. But even now, Berlin has fallen behind the requirements for public playgrounds. Remember the children's law we talked about earlier? It set the goal of one square meter of playground area per resident. According to the most recent data available, even after 40 years of striving, Berlin has only managed to meet 60% of that goal leaving us with a 1.4 square kilometer deficit. Even though we have amazing pirate playgrounds, wonderful abstract climbing structures, and many, many, many castles, it is still not enough. 
So what can this deficit of playground area tell us about Berlin's future? The city is already on a path for exponential privatization of public land and continued densification. So if it's taken 40 years to get us only 60% of that goal, what options do we have going forward now? Perhaps we can start rethinking what and where a playground can be. Maybe on roofs, you know, so roof gardens, underground, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Remember the scenes from Cherry's book from earlier that depicted kids playing cards and other games in the streets? That sort of scene feels surreal today, namely because a lot has changed between now and then. The continued growth of cities, driven by cars, has altered the way people, and especially children, are able to safely use their neighborhoods. A lot of playgrounds have fences around them, you know, like keeping your children safe within that area. And it takes a little bit of this freedom out. And if you look at the past before the cars arrived, streets were a place where you would meet, where you would hang out. And we lost a little bit with all the cars parking, blocking the view, driving, making unsafe. But, you know, if the street in front of your house would not be for cars, you could play football there. You could have little play infrastructures. You know, it doesn't have to be giant playgrounds like this one but the more spread all over the city and make the place generally safe for children and also for others to enjoy and hang out and, and enjoy the city. It's a bit sad that we lost that space, right? A playground is, and should be, a space of infinite freedom. But in modern playgrounds, cars are not the only thing standing in a way. Yes, playgrounds are made for children, but adults are occupying them too since they're supervising the children. What if we rethink how adults use playgrounds in order to make them a more enjoyable experience for everyone? I don't like the separation of adults from kids. For me, it should be more like a multi-generation place where communities can meet. That's what would be my dream for places. That's why I also like places where, you know, like older kids can play football or do skating and smaller kids have a little place where they can safely play in the sand. And then, you know, if you combine that with some outdoor gym where adults that don't even have kids can come, bring the generations together and make it a community again. I think that's the potential that those kind of playgrounds would have, not just for children, for everyone in the city. If adults had playgrounds of their own to use, not just sports teams, not bars, not clubs, but places to experiment, meet new people and build, then we could better understand why having these basic things matter so much. To make pizzas together, climb a rope, build a fire. A rope, we forgot how essential this is. To be free from all restrictions that life puts on us. And to be creative, not for profit or fame, but just because it's fun. So the next time you see a sandpit, it's not just a place for make-believe. It's a chance to reimagine and rebuild our world and to strive for a better community. 
We should all have this experience, and that's why it's important to advocate for children to have it as much as possible. It takes kids who have lived this and remember its value to create a better, more playful world for tomorrow. We want to thank you for joining us, and we hope this episode has stirred some nice memories of your own playgrounds or playscapes. And that no matter if you lived in Berlin your whole life, a few years, or not even at all, that you've learned a little more about how play and creativity are an important part of what make this city so great. A big thank you to all our listeners and everyone who supports us on Patreon and to all our lovely, talented friends who helped make this episode happen. And also you for tuning in. The making of this episode was, as it always is, more than just the research project. It also has taken on a more personal note thanks to the new member of our community and Cody's family. So this episode is dedicated to Babby. As always, the show and research notes are available on our website, www.another.berlin. If you've enjoyed what we're doing, please give us a review and share this episode with your friends. If you're able, please think about supporting us on Patreon to get fun extras like outtakes, behind the scene photos or stories, and insights into how our episodes are made. Your support helps a lot. The best way to get in touch with us is Instagram at another underscore Berlin. Maybe you have an idea for an episode? Let us know. Once again, my name is Cody. And my name is Katarina. And this has been Another, Another Berlin. Berlin.